0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Falcon 9, the 30,000. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the Space Economy Podcast and the next episode in our special series, Doing Business in the Solar System, hosted by Elizabeth Howell. Today's episode focuses on Mars and the Perseverance rover, its helicopter, a future sample return mission, and touches on in-situ resource utilization. Listen in.
1: Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, Mm -hmm. where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a Space Cube podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. Lately we've been hearing about a helicopter flying on Mars, but that's just the beginning of the ambitious Perseverance mission from NASA and its partners. The rover will be taking samples of the surface to cache for a future sample return mission in a quest to better understand potential life on the red planet. To learn more about the mission, we'll be speaking with Chris Hurd, a geologist at the University of Alberta who specializes in studying the geology of Mars for meteorites. He's also participating in the Perseverance mission. Welcome, Dr. Hurd.
0: Hello, and thank you for having me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I'm really glad to have you here. And so, before we dive into the meat of the conversation, can you give our listeners a background about your role in the Perseverance mission and how your team will assist the rover controllers and other relevant people with their work?
0: I'm on the mission as what's called a participating scientist, but in a particular role of returned sample science. Uh, Um, There's about 14 of us that were added to the mission through open calls from NASA and the European Space Agency. And I was added through the NASA call, but uh, because I can't get NASA money uh, in Canada, the Canadian Space Agency is providing my support for it. So a a, a shout out to the CSA for that. Uh, But our job is, is we are all experts in what you do with samples in the lab and they may be samples. Some of my colleagues study the early life on the Earth. So it might be looking for that evidence of of ancient life in the Earth. Others study uh, rocks, uh, myself included, uh, to try to understand the ages of the rocks. And then some of us, like myself in particular, study the meteorites that have come from Mars. So we all know what to do with these samples in the lab. And our job on the mission is to assist uh, to, to play an important role, which is to help to determine where and when to sample the rocks that we we are exploring um, on on Mars now with the Perseverance rover.
1: Okay, and then what is it about Percy, if I may call the rover that? I did get to meet Percy once, and so I feel like we're on a first name basis. Uh, what is it about Percy that makes it so distinctive from past rovers and its ability to uh, search for life?
0: It is incredibly capable um, as as every, you know, sort of every new rover to, sent to Mars is. But what really sets Percy apart is the ability to take samples. Um, and that's a that's a new aspect. On the end of the quite beefy arm that Percy has, there are uh, the Sherlock, Watson, and Pixel analytical tools that allow us to look at rocks up close. And those are going to be really key for figuring out what the rocks are and making sure that what we're about to sample is the thing that we wanna sample. Um, But within the arm itself as well is is the coring device. And this allows us to core into the rock, Percussive rotary percussive drilling, essentially, uh, coring into the rock and into a sleeve that's sort of preloaded into the into the coring bit. So any samples that we get, they're they're going to be about uh, ten centimeters long uh, by just a little bit wider than a centimeter across or in diameter. Um, so kind of think of like a fat marker sort of size, but sealed inside individual tubes, uh, and that is the really the thing that sets sets this mission apart from other ones.
1: Now, as of the time we're recording this, Percy hasn't gone all too far from its landing site at Jezero Crater, but it's all in the plan. (laughs) As I understand it, um, eventually, once we get through other phases of the mission, NASA has been eyeing a delta that's sort of in the vicinity within a reasonable drive for the rover to get to. And so can you talk about what we're expecting, as much as we can tell, to find there and how that could be significant for our ongoing searches for habitability or habitable life?
0: The whole reason why this landing site was chosen is because we know from orbital studies that there's this delta as you mentioned which is a record of a river flowing into jezero crater and the crater was filled with water maybe up to 200 meters depth um, at different times um but but the point is that delta forms in an environment where a river is carrying sediment and is dumping it into uh, a standing body of water so right, that right there tells you it was a Potentially habitable environment. We've landed in the in the crater on the crater floor, and we will be driving up, as you mentioned, onto the delta itself. The different parts of the delta are going to be quite interesting. In particular, uh, some of the mudstones, so some of the the really just think sort of the mud that's turned into rock. I mean, that's why we call it mudstone. But really fine grained material. Where in deltas on the Earth, the the, the organic matter that exists in abundantly on the earth, tends to get trapped with those really, really fine particles that go into making mudstones. So we often have organic matter preserved with mudstones on the earth. So that's definitely one target. And then the other target is towards the edge of the of this ancient crater lake, there's a very intriguing hint of carbonate, sort of limestone-like minerals, uh, near the, the edge sort of where the old shoreline uh, may have been. And so that's quite interesting too, because of course, if if life was there, it may have used the chemistry of the water to perhaps precipitate to form these carbonate minerals like, like it does on the earth. Uh, and so that's another, another potential target. But what I've described are these, basically these habitable environments and, and what really we're able to do with the tools on the rover will give us hints But the samples, when they come back, will allow us to test whether any of those habitable environments were actually inhabited.
1: All right. And then, uh, when it comes to the caching process, how would Percy physically pick up and cache those samples for something else to pick up later?
0: Well, they get they get core. The cores get automatically fed into as they're drilled on the on the with the. A mechanism on the arm they get drilled into sample tubes and the sample tube goes into the belly of the rover for imaging to make sure we've got you know a nice full tube and then it gets sealed up and then it goes into, into storage on on the rover itself um, at certain points in the mission we'll put down a cache um, so the current plans are in about three years at the end of of kind of the prime mission or, or sort of the prime mission plus a little bit of time, we would put down a cache at the edge of Jezero Crater. So the whole point is to climb up onto the Delta and then actually to leave the crater itself. So near the crater rim, we would actually be putting down a cache of samples. Then we would continue on. We might actually take duplicates of samples inside the Jezero Crater and sort of carry those greatest hits with us, uh, leaving, a, leaving a copy of, of the first set down on in this first cache and carry the rest with us outside Jezro, which is a whole other kind of geological playground uh, with ancient rock, even more ancient rocks uh, that would have a lot of significance potentially. And then we put a second cache down uh, toward the end of another three years time. So to, by 2028, we'd have two caches set on the surface, ready to be picked up by a future mission.
1: That's wonderful. And then what's the best case scenario for something else wandering along, so to speak, to pick up what Percy left behind?
0: Well, um, the the sample fetch rover is being uh, developed by the European Space Agency. And and it's a very much an international collaboration sort of thing, NASA and the European Space Agency and other partners are working on this. And, and the idea would be that by 2028 at the earliest, the fetch rover would arrive at one of these two caches and would collect up the samples. And then they would it would put the samples in a in a, a container that would be loaded onto a rocket on a lander on Mars and blast it off the surface. And that container would then go into orbit around Mars where it would be rendezvoused by an orbiting spacecraft that was there. And that spacecraft would capture it, turn around and head for home um, uh, to arrive at in 2031 at the earliest.
1: Okay. Now now that we know a little bit about what Percy is doing now, what it's going to be doing in the next, gosh, few years, um, let's talk about the environment of Mars, the challenges that we face there. So for microbes, even, what makes it so challenging for life as we know it?
0: Mars's history is such that it lost a large part of its atmosphere. And it also, it had a magnetic field, but that died out some three and a half to four billion years ago. So it doesn't have that protective um, aspect to it. So the surface is bombarded by cosmic radiation all the time. It's quite a a dangerous environment in that regard. And even organic matter, even if it's not specifically associated with with life, will get broken down by this ultraviolet um, and cosmic radiation over time. So that we think that the surface is largely sterile. Uh, and, and and not uh, suitable for life. And because of also the, because of the cold temperatures and the low pressure of the atmosphere, liquid water is not stable.
1: Okay. So is there any hope for habitability on the surface or will we have to look elsewhere, such as under the surface?
0: I think it's generally accepted that the surface is is really inhospitable to life. And so we need to look beneath the surface. Yeah, for anything that may be living today.
1: Okay. And so any cache samples that you're picking up would represent potentially finding things from millions or billions of years ago is what you're telling me?
0: Yes. There's two ways to look for life on Mars. One is to go uh, down uh, underneath this radiation bombarded surface, and the other is to go back in time, and we're doing the latter.
1: You're doing the latter back in time. Yes. Far, far simpler, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay. Now, um, considering that we want to get humans on the surface and potential operations, I do want to kind of tilt it towards that because uh, you know we've seen movies like The Martian, and so people sort of have a sense about some of the challenges. So under the last presidential administration, bearing in mind that the new presidential administration is still feeling its way, NASA was musing about pe- bringing people to Mars as soon as the 2030s, although it was a little nebulous. They are saying 2033, 2035, and then they weren't sure if it was going to be orbital or more than that. Obviously, there are a lot of technical problems we have to figure out first, and we also need to let the Biden administration get its feet under it. It's only been in office for a little more than a hundred days. But just on a more general sense, um, what in your mind would be some of the principal things that we should know before we could consider sending humans to this challenging environment?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, uh, there's a whole number of things. I mean, I, and I'm not an expert in in sort of the uh, the biology or, or human physiology that's Challenges, but I can say that in terms of of the Martian environment, the radiation environment is one. Um, but the other thing that I think that we need to understand is is the dust and the composition of of the dust uh, and the soil, um, because where experience with Apollo missions showed that the lunar dust gets everywhere, and it's really unavoidable. Um, but if we're going to have humans go to Mars and spend a good amount of time there, which I think current plans are for for at least a few months. Um, that dust is gonna get everywhere. And we don't really have, we have an idea of what the, the sort of the, the overall composition of the dust is and, and some of its behavior from previous missions, but you know what, we need a sample. And so one of the things that Percy is gonna be able to do is we have a special bit, different drill bit that allows us to, to collect dust and and soil, and those are going to be really key. Those are key for a number of scientific reasons, but one of the reasons is also to enable future human exploration because we don't even really know essentially the toxicology of of that dust, Um, what trace elements are in it, uh, the particle sizes, that sort of thing, and I think that's going to be a really important component, really important thing to know before we send humans. So there's another reason why, you know, the 2031 Time frame or, or the, the early 2030s for bringing samples back I think is an important one if we're if we're thinking about sending humans to Mars in the 2030s.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And I know that the Apollo astronauts said that dust was absolutely the worst thing about being on the moon as much as they, uh, they enjoyed the experience. And um, of course, another challenge too is Mars is so much further than the moon. And so when you're talking about bringing supplies back and forth, as the movie The Martian showed, there are a lot of challenges. you got to make sure the planets are lined up in the right area for uh, for one thing, in their orbits. And so there's been this talk at NASA about what's called in-situ resource utilization. And I realize we're moving. Slightly outside of your, your, your expertise, I'll just give a quick summary for people here. Basically, it's an idea of taking the resources that you have in place, like regolith or the uh, soil that's there, and repurposing it for building structures, or you could even do things with some modifications like growing plants. So these practices might allow us to bring fewer things to Mars, but to relate that back to Perseverance, it does have an instrument on board called MOXIE. That's going to be looking at one aspect of trying to repurpose stuff in place for humans and so can you talk a little bit about how that works
0: yeah it's it's fascinating so moxie is an instrument it's a, a technology demonstration instrument on the rover that's meant to see if we can create pure oxygen from the carbon dioxide rich atmosphere of mars and what's really great is that it just recently it was around april 20th i think it was the first test was done, and it was successful, and they were able to produce just uh, just over five grams of pure oxygen from the Martian atmosphere in the space of, of under an hour, and um, and that's really exciting. And uh, I guess uh, from what I've read, that's that's enough oxygen to keep an astronaut healthy for about ten minutes. So you would really need to scale up something like that, but but it demonstrates that it is possible, and you need to, and and so we can envision. There'll be other tests that Moxie does all throughout the mission, but uh, but we can in, to to make sure it works well. But we can envision sending something like that, a scaled-up version, to Mars ahead of any human exploration, to build up a supply of oxygen directly from the Martian atmosphere, um, and that yeah obviates the need for us to bring all that oxygen uh, with us uh, to to Mars, and then it can be used for obviously for breathing, but also for rocket fuel.
1: Exactly. And ongoing studies on the International Space Station are looking at things like repurposing the urine right into water, and they have a system in place that might work with some modifications in other places. So this is all, this is all integrated. It's all in the plan, like I said earlier. Um, let's come back to Percy's operations. So it's been very busy so far, obviously. There's been a lot of uh, helicopter operations in the timeline that we're talking, and then, of course, it's going to be moving forward. But what have you been enjoying so far in this first rush, this first few months of, uh, of operations?
0: Well, after the initial, I mean, the initial experience of going, of attending all remotely, of course, because of travel restrictions, but attending the first science discussions on the first few days, seeing the first images, that was absolutely fascinating. I had never, that was completely new for me. I've not been involved in a mission before. And so that was really exciting. And since then it's been, it's, it's, it's sort of this experience like, I can't believe this is really happening. You know, I can't believe this is, we're actually doing this. There's still a lot that we need to know and there's still a lot that we still haven't commissioned all the instruments and we won't be able to sample until early July. But at the same time, we're still trying to understand the rocks that we're sitting on now at the landing site um, and also make plans. Uh, And that's, I think the exciting thing is, is the day-to-day operations are showing us new things, especially as new instruments are coming online. And it's helping us to answer some questions and ask more questions. But at the same time, we're also able, because we're on the ground now, we kind of know we're starting to sort of work with our budget of, of Martian days or, or sols to do, to do different things, we can start to make those plans uh, of where we're going to go next, uh, what we're planning, what, what the priorities are for what samples we really want to get that are the top priority, um, and, then, and then continue the exploration.
1: Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the science you're hoping to generate. So I realize you will have to speak a little bit about hopes and dreams, you may not be able to talk about what's exactly in hand. So forgive me for, for moving into the theory. But how will your study of meteorites hopefully help inform what the rover is looking for on the surface to begin with?
0: We have. I've. Yeah. I've. I've made. Uh. have spent my career, most of my career, working on meteorites from Mars. And and just as a bit of background, these are rocks that are blasted off the surface of Mars by other impacts. So something has to hit Mars, and rocks near the point of impact get accelerated fast enough to leave Mars gravity, which is kind of fascinating when you think about it. But it's sort of nature's delivery service for getting rocks off the surface. Now. The thing is that we now have over 160 meteorites from Mars, and the majority of them, over 80%, are rocks that are lava flows that formed on Mars in the last few hundred million years. Uh, And as great, and they're fantastic to study, but as great as they are, we now understand that there is a bias in the sample collection. Because that's a very violent process that I described, and so it's really only the strongest rocks; those are the that are are igneous, like lava flows, nice interlocking crystals, and which haven't been su- su- significantly altered by the activity of water, that are going to make that trip. What Percy allows us to do is to go and choose the rocks that we're going to collect. And we're in an area where the rocks are thought to be over 3 billion years old. So we're going to be able to pick and choose the rocks that that we collect. Now, most of the rocks that I mentioned in the environments that I mentioned are from the delta, from this ancient uh, river uh, system. Uh, But I'm hoping that we'll get maybe a couple of rocks that are igneous rocks, kind of like the Martian meteorites, but much older, and that will allow us would allow us to really compare what was going on from an igneous perspective, from you know the interior of Mars sort of perspective over more of its history, uh, and I think that's that's kind of one of the things I'm looking forward to is 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 those comparative studies that they because the those studies the studies that we anticipate from the rocks that we bring back. From Mars as a result of Perseverance's exploration and the meteorites and ongoing studies of the meteorites are really complementary to each other.
1: That makes a lot of sense, right? And then, in terms of the geology, what are you hoping that Percy's going to show us that previous missions have not yet?
0: Well, I think that, I mean, even just the rocks we're sitting on now, which we're still puzzling over, it's something new and it's something different. And uh, I think between that and actually exploring uh, a delta, right up close, you know, firsthand as it were. Um, and then when we get outside of Jezero, there's a whole series of other rocks of wide different varieties that are even older than the rocks that are deposited within Jezero Crater. Uh, I think that variety is, is, is what's going to be really exciting. And if we do our job right and and the, the final cache it, that we put down has Uh, some 30 samples in it they're going to be that is going to be one heck of a sample suite and it will it will once successfully brought back to the earth will revolutionize our understanding of mars geology as well as planetary science um and i won't say that lightly but but the experience from apollo tells us that as well and those samples like apollo samples will keep scientists busy for decades to come
1: Oh, for sure. And then we get to take a look at it with more and more advanced instruments as the decades move on. I mean, that's how we found water in some of the Apollo samples. We couldn't find it with what was available in the 60s and 70s, but then in the 2000s, we were. So I am I agree with you there.
0: Exactly. And really, you know, Apollo samples drove a lot of instrument development. So I'm excited that the, you know, uh, samples from Mars would actually drive drive technological development on the earth for things like life detection or or that that sort of that sort of thing and i think that's the other sort of component to this i think is often overlooked
1: exactly and then if you were lucky enough to get the chance to be on the sample return mission as well as this mission what would you be trying to do scientifically in an ideal world if you could really drive the agenda
0: well, there is, there's those comparative studies with the meteorites that I mentioned. I think that would be really exciting. But you know, the other aspect of this, I think what's exciting about being on the mission in the role that I'm in, and I'm sure my colleagues feel the same way, is that we'll have a hand in selecting the samples that get collected. And of course, we're also in charge of documenting the context for those samples, which is really the huge advantage that we have, especially in contrast to the meteorites, which are are blasted from random uh, spots on the surface. That they that we actually have the the context and we the and the all of the sort of the 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 maybe gray literature I guess you could say or the the sort of the background information about how we came to the decision to sample that particular rock and its context will all be part of, of what we've done. And, and so all that's to say is that I think I'm going to have a couple of favorite rocks. And so I think what is really exciting is that is the idea that rocks that I'm involved in helping to choose and collect with perseverance, I might get a chance to actually uh, study in the lab in, in 10 years time or so.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, I really hope that happens for you because I'd be excited to hear the result. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And so uh, that was Chris Hurd, a geologist at the University of Alberta in Canada who specializes in studying the geology of Mars for meteorites. And this was Doing Business in the Solar System, which is a Space Cube podcast with your host, Elizabeth Howell.
0: Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, the economy space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use thank you